Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charva Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's subtopic is violence in Kashmir. As you guys know, recently there has been a spate of violent attacks on innocent citizens in Kashmir. And to chat about that, I have my favorite journalist with me, Arthi Tiku Singh. Arthi, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kushal. It's always a pleasure to be on your platform. I think I was one of your earliest uh, journalists who uh, spoke to you. I don't even remember the year now, but it was your early days of the podcast, and I was there. Yeah, a year and a half, or year and a half. Uh, yeah, and and since then it has only grown, and I wish you all the success and greater success for what you have created. It's a phenomenal journey that you undertook, and I wish you all the best. And I'm happy to be here. Thank, thanks a lot. It means a lot to me. So, Arthi, uh, just you know, so that we can uh, maybe people. Are, I know it, it might not be possible, but still. So let's start like this. Can, can we start by you maybe narrating what has happened up till now recently in the spate of violence? So, so wow, the let's start start with how the victims were maybe brutally murdered. So that you know, somebody's listening to this. Maybe they don't know what has happened in Kashmir recently. So can we start from there? Yeah, well, I think uh, it's important to mention that uh, violence has continued in Kashmir uh, even before uh, the recent spate of uh, killings of minorities. Uh, the thing is that many people may have a wrong impression that after the nullification of Article 370 and reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, you know, things change dramatically and there's been quiet and peace in Kashmir. That is not true. Uh, there, there has been violence. There have been terror attacks. But what is important to also note that the kind of street violence, the mob violence that we used to see in Kashmir, that has disappeared. The kind of stone pelting, you know, clashes between security forces and stone pelting youth, those ISIS, flag carrying boys in Srinagar city, those things have gone. Uh, what has also gone is that, you know, we used to hear that there were big terror attacks, for example, Pulwama terror attack, if you remember, where 40 CRPF soldiers were killed. We are not seeing big terror attacks in Kashmir, but we are, what we are seeing, especially after the takeover of Afghanistan by Taliban, we are seeing that minorities in Kashmir, when I say minorities, that includes Kashmiri Hindus and Sikhs, and also non-Kashmiri Hindus uh, who are working in Kashmir as labor or as, uh, you know, for different jobs, those are being selectively targeted. And that's what has happened in the last couple of weeks. We saw, uh, in fact, one of the most well-known chemists or pharmacists in Kashmir was a gentleman known as Makhanlal Bilbi. He mm -hmm. was dead. Then, of course, uh, there was a Bihari uh, street vendor was also shot dead on the same day. And then there was a Kashmiri Muslim also shot dead on the same day. So in a way, if you can, uh, if you want to really analyze why it happened and who are the targets 
in the recent violence in Kashmir, these are three categories. Mm-hmm. One category is of Kashmiri Hindus. The second category is the non-Kashmiri Hindu working in Kashmir. Third category, of course, is Kashmiri Muslim. And a couple of days later, when these three people were killed, two more people were killed. One was a school principal, a Kashmiri Sikh woman who was uh, heading a school as a a principal. She was shot dead. And her colleague, who was a um, Hindu, not a Kashmiri, but a Hindu, he was also shot dead. Now, they were selectively targeted. In fact, the entire staff in that school, that particular school, not very far from Srinagar city. Mm-hmm. They were they were uh, basically segregated from the rest of the staff in that school, and they were uh, their identity cards were checked, and it was ensured that they were not Muslims, and therefore mm-hmm. they were shot dead. Now, if one were to to look at the pattern of killings, yes, there have been killings of Kashmiri Muslims. But at the same time, the recent violence was targeted at minorities, that is Hindus and Sikhs. Now, one would question that why this sudden attack, although it's not sudden, there have been minority killings, a lot of uh, in fact, BJP activists, Kashmiri Hindu and even uh, otherwise, BJP activists, including Kashmiri Muslims, have been killed in the last couple of years. Now, now, what could be the reason for them to specifically target a particular, not just the minority angle, but specifically target specific kinds of people? Uh, is that because they want to send a message and create a sense of fear in them that, look, we are the bosses here and uh, no matter what happens, things will never change? What could be the reasons? Like, uh, Are there any analysis done on that side too? There are two particular reasons. One, I want to uh, connect the geopolitical situation in the region to Kashmir violence. And the second, I want to connect this violence also to some of the laws or amendments that the center has brought in in the last couple of years. And it's very important to understand both factors. First, the geopolitics. Ever since the US withdrew from Afghanistan, Taliban, which is backed by Pakistan Army, Taliban, which is in fact uh, an ally of Pakistan Army, and now also an ally of Beijing, that is Xi Jinping's government, Taliban has been feeling emboldened, which means the Islamists in Afghanistan and Pakistan are feeling uh, quite empowered and emboldened, and also feeling a sense of triumph, just like when Taliban was able to defeat Soviet Union, or you can say not defeat, but uh, they believed that they, de- they defeated Soviet Union, but it wasn't essentially Taliban defeating Soviet Union uh, in 1890. It was also the fact that the CIA, the Americans had provided arms and ammunition and full support to Taliban uh, through its proxy Pakistan Army. And that's when, you know, uh, the Soviet Union was forced out 
of Afghanistan in 1890. The same sense of triumph that Taliban felt at that point of time, they feel it now because they believe that they have defeated America despite the fact America was in Afghanistan for 20 years uh, for war against terror. But at the end of the day, America was uh, completely failed in defeating Taliban. America also failed in uh, defeating Al-Qaeda, which is a partner of Taliban, an ally of Taliban, and also an ally of Pakistan army, even though the US may say that they killed Osama bin Laden. But the fact is today, Al-Qaeda still persists and prevails in Afghanistan. Taliban is back in power, which is, uh, you know, which is with the whole issue in Afghanistan was the Taliban was sheltering Al-Qaeda. Taliban mm -hmm. had given that entire space, that entire territory to Al-Qaeda, which Al-Qaeda used against America. Now, now that Joe Biden administration exited from Afghanistan, leaving arms and ammunition behind, the way they left uh, in a hurry, not even protecting their own assets, not protecting the Afghans who had worked for them, and not protecting even their own citizens. If you remember, Americans were also killed during the withdrawal. So uh, that has given a sense of triumph to Pakistan army and Taliban. And uh, if you remember the last time, the same situation uh, was became the fertile ground for Pakistan's cross-border terrorism in Kashmir. They sent Hezbollah Mujahideen first, then Lashkar-e-Taiba, and then Jaish-e-Mohammed Mujahideen to Kashmir because they had all the money and the arms and the ammunition. And of course, they had the support of all the Islamists, Jihadis, Taliban, Al-Qaeda. And that's how Kashmir became the biggest hub of Islamist terrorism uh, in the region in 1990. Now, uh, this time, they think that, you know, uh, now that America has left, Biden doesn't care. They can again, once again, create a similar situation for India in Kashmir, destabilize the region, destabilize, uh, you know, Indian institutions and Indian system in Kashmir and uh, repeat what Kashmir experienced in 1990. That, I will come back to this point, but I want to now address the second point which I mentioned earlier. The changes that have happened in Kashmir, in Jammu and Kashmir in the last two years. One is the fact that after the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir, two uh, major amendments were made. One was on the domicile. Today, uh, by the amendments that the center brought in, uh, many people who spent 15 years or so in Kashmir are entitled to domicile certificate, which means that you don't necessarily have to be a native or an ethnic Dogra or an ethnic Kashmiri to be a, or be a resident of Jammu and Kashmir. And that is at par with 
the system or the law in other parts of the country, in most parts of the country. Uh, for example, a Kashmiri Hindu or Muslim is also, can also be a resident of, say, Bombay, right? There is no bar, there is no restriction on having that kind of entitlement and having that kind of a right. So Kashmir was brought at par with the rest of the country where uh, now anybody can, anybody who has spent 15 years or so who has lived in Kashmir, who has lived in JNK can be part of, can be seen uh, as a resident of JNK. The second thing that the government of India did was they made some amendments in the land laws of JNK. And land laws opened up Jammu and Kashmir to investments from across the country, also opened up JNK again and brought it par uh, with, with most, most states where anybody can go buy land, uh, can buy uh, property, settle down there, invest in businesses, except for the farm laws, which which have uh, which are uh, which are different. But anybody who is interested in business investment, anybody who is interested in going and settling down there, setting up a factory or uh, looking for a job in private sector, and even in government jobs. People can now apply for jobs and uh, they will be treated at par with JNK's residents and not get discriminated against. So, this has created a certain insecurity and you can also say a frenzy among many conflict entrepreneurs in Kashmir. Conflict entrepreneurs are those people who benefited from the conflict in Kashmir in the last 30 years. And that is why they were opposed to the nullification of 370, Article 370 and 35A. They were also opposed to uh, reorganization of state. They were also, they are also opposed to peace and stability in Kashmir. Because peace and stability harms their conflict uh, based industry. A lot of people made a lot of wealth in the last 30 years. If you go to Kashmir, it does not look like a conflict zone. It looks like a place which has, uh, which is booming, where people have massive bungalows, where people have wealth. You don't see the kind of poverty uh, in Kashmir the kind of poverty that you see in other parts of the country. For example, you go to uh, Chhattisgarh, you go to Odisha, you go to Bihar or UP. You don't see that kind of uh, poverty in Kashmir. In fact, Kashmir feels like a very prosperous uh, place and does not seem to uh, come across as something which has seen a lot of violence. Even as that is the fact that, you know, uh, 50,000 people or more have been killed in Kashmir in the last 30 years. Uh, now, that this peace and stability that these laws can bring, because uh, how is stability ensured? Stability is ensured when you have, uh, when you have businesses coming in freely, when you have investments coming in freely, when you have private sector coming in freely without any inhibition, without any threat, 
or uh, without any insecurity. But it does not suit that entire conflict industry because if investment comes and Kashmir becomes like any other region of the country, it becomes like Pune or it becomes like, say, Himachal, it, mm -hmm. it will harm that entire conflict entrepreneur circuit. So, so that, you know, those entrepreneurial conflict, entrepreneurial uh, gangsters, I would say, I would call them, they would not like to see peace and stability in Kashmir. So they will hobnob with uh, Lashkar-e-Taiba, Jashimabad, Hizbul Mujahideen and Pakistan's ISI to disrupt that. That is one. And also the fact that, you know, Pakistan in the last 70 years has been insisting on uh, the whole idea called Gazwai Hind. They want mm -hmm. Islamic Khalifat in Kashmir. All these terror groups, Islamist terror groups, they want Islamic Khalifat in Kashmir. And for that, they need homogeneity. They need complete homogeneity. They need complete control over everything, institutions, investments, public sector, private sector. And they, all they want is a Muslim demography in Kashmir. And that is now uh, seen as under threat because they feel that if outsiders, they call the rest of people in India as outsiders, if non-Muslims come and then they have opportunities, then they settle down. If Kashmiri pundits, for example, Kashmiri Hindus, they return to Kashmir, then this entire conflict business, you know, gets busted and the entire uh, conflict industry uh, you know will not be able to sustain so it doesn't suit many players and it includes uh, political parties it also includes uh, many people uh, within the bureaucracy who make a lot of money it also includes the terror funding network which includes businesses in kashmir a lot of people have been found to uh, you know, have connections not just in uh, in Pakistan, but a lot of uh, people also have connections in Middle East and connections in the US and UK elsewhere who have minted a lot of money and wealth through this So that is why they, this message to Kashmiri Hindus, message to non-Kashmiri Hindus, message to Sikhs, message to everybody who is uh, who wants peace and stability in Kashmir and who also may want to return to Kashmir and also may want to settle down in Kashmir. So it's a message to a lot of demographic groups that don't come to Kashmir. It's a Muslim majority valley. We will continue to retain its Muslim homogeneity and we won't let you change its demographics. Because the only uh, right or entitlement to changing the demography of Kashmir is to Islamists, which they did throughout history in Kashmir. It was the seventh exodus of Kashmir Hindus in 1990, but before that, it had taken uh, 700 years of executions, of torment, of persecution of Hindus in Kashmir that changed the demography of Kashmir. And uh, even now, the whole 
uh, this, you know, you can say the entire Islamist network based in Kashmir and Rawalpindi and Islamabad, their agenda is to retain the Muslim identity of Kashmir. Now, this is fascinating, Arti, that, uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to take names because that's just not my nature. But I see this argument from Kashmir apologists all the time that, oh, you're purposely changing the demography. Why does it bother them? I don't get it. I even know people who privately claim to be atheists who are Kashmiris. Uh, you know them too. We don't need to take names. They don't even have, as I say, the bollocks to admit openly they're atheists. You and I walk around openly. Nothing happens to us in our communities. And we are both living proofs of that. I'm an open Gnostic. And then, you know, I, I, I remember talking to many of these players, by the way. And they would be like, nah, nah, nah. If I talk about my disbelief, you know, they might harm my family. And then you talk about maintaining the same demography. Then what is the difference between them, the so-called atheists, and the Islamists? I don't know. Am I wrong in my understanding? Is it that, that crazy? Uh, no, I think, you know, time and again, I have said that more than anything else, it's the conflict industry, uh, which is one, um, propagating these views. And it is, it in, of course, it intimidates uh, Muslims more. But it has also, if you really think about it, Kashmiri Hindus were ethnically cleansed. We were driven out. And intimidation has been such that till date, we have not returned. We have not returned to the valley, despite assurances from people, uh, many people. But I would also say that, you know, it is high time. It is high time that if anybody, if anybody has really broken the shackles of religious identity and has come to a point of uh, having disbelief in one's religion, then uh, the only way to fight radicalism, the only way to fight extremism and violent extremism is to by actually publicly announcing what you are, what you think, because until and unless somebody does it, and until and unless you call out some the, the bluff of the extremists, you will continue to live in fear. You will continue to live in intimidation. And that is the reason, you know, I was the youngest Kashmiri Hindu woman journalist who went to Kashmir when at the age of 21. Mm. And I didn't, I mean, my parents were scared. Everybody was scared for me. But I was insistent that I cannot live in fear. I have to go. I want to find out the truth. So this whole uh, notion that, you know, um, we cannot speak, our families will be harmed. Well, my family can also be harmed. I can also be harmed. Somebody can just shoot me dead, you know, uh, in Kashmir, but I continue to go there. I, my brothers, uh, they, have, they have come back to Kashmir. So this notion that we will get killed, many people have gotten killed. Many people have, uh, in fact, our soldiers have laid down their lives. How, for how long are we going to live in this fear? For how long are we going to 
say that you know oh our parents will get harm if we're going to if we in 1990 our situation was bad as a country for example our economy was at its lowest ebb we were dealing with an economic crisis mm. we we were uh, also politically unstable at that time we had just entered the coalition era which were completely unstable and a lot of there was a lot of pressure especially after the break up of soviet union and we also saw assassination of uh, prime minister rajiv gandhi who was not prime minister at that time but uh, we saw assassination of indira gandhi so we we went through that tumultuous period and here we are 30 years later india as a confident nation which can take on uh, bullies which can take on enemies we have a situation still on both the uh, frontiers whether it's east or west between china and pakistan we are still uh, we still have a crisis but we as a nation are far more confident today our economy mm-hmm. is uh, far far more robust today and politically also we are not in that situation as we were in 1990 and if after 30 years we continue to be intimidated if we continue to say that oh we cannot say such things publicly then clearly as a society we have made no progress as mm. as uh, i would also say that you know uh, in the last 30 years literacy rates have gone very high right lot of education uh, has uh, i would ha- say ha- happened across the country and in the last 10 20 years of technological advancement because of social media because of uh, the purchasing power parity and all those things have added to our confidence added to our way of looking things and also enhanced our understanding enhanced our uh, i would say uh knowledge and after 30 years if you're still saying that hum nahi bol sakte we can't say such things we will get harm then sorry as a society you have made no progress then you are no different from people who has been who been using their religious identity i as uh, an atheist and uh, a kushal uh, on your uh, platform today i would say that I'm an atheist, but I'm also I have also recognized in the last few years. In fact, I would say since 2018, I've also recognized that I am a cultural Indian. You can call me a cultural Hindu. Uh, you know, you can call me a plain Hindu, but I'm also an Indian, and I have recognized that. Now, people many a times confuse that. Uh, in fact, some people have asked me recently that you uh, you are attending religious festivals. and i want to put it on record of course i am going to attend religious festivals i am going to participate in what my parents enjoy and celebrate and i will also do many things that my parents would like me to do including do be a part of their puja be a part of their celebration yes but that is not to say that you know i don't have doubts i have very strong doubts about the concept of god i have uh, doubts about many things that uh, you know are come with with religion 
come with entire religious scripture. I have questions. I am a skeptic. And nobody can take that away from me. So I am an atheist. I am a skeptic. I am also a cultural Hindu, cultural Indian. And all of it uh, is still acceptable to my family, to my community, to my society. And if you cannot say that you have questions, you have doubts, you have skepticism, then sorry, then there's something is, is something is not right. Then you haven't made any progress. You can't. Then you are actually befooling yourself and befooling everybody else. I as a oh, I as a cultural Hindu, yeah. as an Indian, I as somebody who respects what my parents, uh, you know, my parents' religion is, what my parents' culture is, and I will participate in all that, and I will even oblige or I will even do things that gives them pleasure and happiness. But that is not to say that they can take away my freedom to question God or to question religious practices or to even question uh, some customs or rituals. I will always question. And that right is fundamentally the right every uh, thinking Muslim should seek. That is the right that they need to seek. Nothing else. That you should be allowed to doubt. That is the basic, I think, uh, point and essential, uh, I would say, requisite for any critical thinking person. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And this is where I have always found myself to be completely out of place with new atheism. And because my culture always gave me the space and I go to temples too. I have no issues. I'll bow down in front of an idol. I even you say a prayer. It doesn't affect me. My personal beliefs about the supernatural have never come in the way of my cultural experience as a Hindu. I, I have never understood what the Christian people, atheists from Christian backgrounds and Muslim backgrounds keep talking about. And uh, that's their problem. I always say, you know, that's your problem that your religion has an issue with disbelief, not my problem. So why are you imposing my your problem on me? But now let us go back to that bit about the 90s exodus. So, you know, with the recent spate of violence, there was this narrative. I, I, I'm not talking about narrative off on the ground, but at least on social media, there was this talk about, you know, oh, this is the new exodus. It's happening again. Uh, I... I I honestly have no opinion about this, Arti, because I am not in touch with many people over there. So I really don't know what's happening. I mean, we saw, I saw random tweets of people saying, oh, you know, again, Kashmiri Hindus or Kashmiri Pandits are leaving again and uh, the exodus is happening again. But I just wanted to know, like, what is the sentiment right now? Good question. And let me tell you, let me tell you. So this narrative clearly came from armchair journalists. This is the narrative uh, people created without having visited the ground. And I did, even this time. I have always made it a point, whenever there was any crisis, any kind of uh, violence in Kashmir, which was striking and uh, which were, became big news, I've always visited Kashmir. This time too, I went to Kashmir and for your audience, let me uh, share this. I went straight to Lal Chowk. Lal Chowk has been notorious for uh, for whatever has happened in the last 30 years. It became a symbol of separatism. It became a symbol of Islamism in Kashmir. It also became 
a symbol of terror in Kashmir in the last 30 years. Okay, that is the reality of Lalchuk, and it has always been the it has always been seen as a challenge to hoist Indian flag on Lalchuk in the last 30 years. Many people, uh, many people tried, many people wanted to, but were not able to do that in the last 30 years. Except for now, Lal Chowk has tricolor lighting on day in, day out. And this time, when after these killings, I went to Kashmir, I went straight to Lal Chowk because I heard at the airport that there was a protest going on on Lal Chowk against Pakistan, against those terror attacks in which these minority members were killed in Kashmir. So it was a shock to me that, oh my God, has somebody really dared to do that? This is the place where people used to be afraid to go at after 6 p.m. This is the place where Pakistani flag and Islamic flags, ISIS flags, all kind of violence and extreme extremism was at display in the last 30 years. And somebody is protesting against Pakistan on Lal Chowk. For me, it was, it was a big news because nothing else really, you can say, exhibits the change in Kashmir but that symbolic place. I went there and I saw youth. I wouldn't say it was a huge or a massive protest, but it was a decent protest. That a uh, lot of youth were there standing. There was a candlelight uh, protest and people were openly saying, uh, openly lashing out at Pakistan openly calling out Pakistan for those terror attacks and openly saying that we will not tolerate this. We are standing by Hindus and Sikhs and other minorities in Kashmir, just as they stand by us. So this is a change. This is not, this was not possible in 1990. 1990, if anyone, I mean, I was there in, in 1990, I left Kashmir on January 29th, 1990. But I've seen Kashmir of 1989 and Kashmir of January uh, 1990. And I can tell you, not, not a single person would have dared in 1990 to go to Lal Chowk and shout against Pakistan. Not one single person would have said a thing against Islamist terrorists in Kashmir in 1990. So anyone who's creating this narrative, I mean, they are either, I don't know what they're doing, but clearly they have no connection to the ground. They have absolutely no idea uh, what all has changed in Kashmir in the last two years. They have absolutely no idea that this narrative actually helps Pakistan because this is what Pakistan wants. They want to project to Kashmiri people that they are at the mercy of Pakistan, their lives are at the mercy of Pakistan, so don't stand by India. Pakistan's agenda is to project that India, Indian states, 
uh, writ is weak in Kashmir, that Indian sovereignty is weak in Kashmir, and these people who are creating this narrative, this is another exodus, this is another 1990, clearly have no idea about what Pakistan is trying to do, and they, in a way, willy-nilly, uh, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously, are contributing to Pakistan's narrative. That's what I would say. Yep. Uh, so, uh, now here's the thing. Now, uh, as we actually chat right now, unfortunately, we've just I've just uh, received a message of the unfortunate demise of two more street vendors. I think uh, the reports are one is Arvind Kumar um, and the other, I think, has been uh, uh, Sagir Ahmed, one from Uttar Pradesh. I think the other one, I don't know, is, is he from Bihar or Uttar Pradesh? And so obviously there's a clear narrative that you know there is an attempt from one side to intimidate the people but uh, naturally there is going to now here's the thing so as far as the retaliation from the indian state is concerned uh, from what i understand now i i don't remember the exact number i think around 13 uh, terrorists have been neutralized in the last 6 to 7 days so in terms of so let us now talk about the response from the indian state look uh, and, uh, as brutal as it sounds and as unfortunate as it sounds, I'm not undermining it, but uh, in a conflict zone like Kashmir, unfortunately, when we are trying to normalize it, lives are going to be lost no matter what the Indian state tries to do. It's a very unfortunate fact. And it's the job of the Indian state to make sure that, you know, it goes away from there. But in, now let us analyze the response of the state. Now, we obviously know that one of the terrorists uh, who had... Uh, Killed the first street vendor, the Chartwala, have, was neutralized by the state. So, so is there any difference in terms of the state response this time in comparison, let's say, to the previous occasions? In your opinion? Uh, well, I there is a difference. The difference is basically this: that before the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir, in fact, I would say that uh, beginning 2018-19. The government changed its policy in Kashmir. The government cracked down on terror networks. There have been cases filed against many important people in terror funding. There was a ban against Jamaat-e-Islami, if you remember. There was a ban on JKLF. Uh, there was a lot of counterinsurgency operations took place in 2018-19. And the difference today, I would say, is that the state is in a much better shape. The state is in a better control. Uh, the state is also better equipped. They have, uh, they have, uh, they have changed the track because earlier, when the popular governments were in power in Kashmir. It was almost impossible to completely crack down on terror networks because one, there was a lot of political in interference. So whenever, whenever say police or security forces made arrests, there used to be political pressure to release them because everybody knows everybody in Kashmir and there is some relative, some friend, somebody's uh, relative. And that's how people used to come back into the terror network. Now, this time I would say they have, they have the advantage of not facing that political pressure. 
But at the same time, I want to remind your audience that something has happened in the region and that event, that incident is important to take note of, which is Taliban has taken over in Afghanistan. Pakistan mm. army is emboldened. Taliban is emboldened. And be sure that Jash, Lashkar, uh, Hezbollah Mujahideen, who are getting trained in Afghanistan under the shelter of Taliban, they will directly, indirectly, sooner or later, find their way into Kashmir. In fact, some of them have already made, you know, they have already made it to Kashmir. And that network needs to be broken. So the government of India will have to really up the ante, they will have to do much more than what they were doing before the withdrawal of the US troops, the NATO troops in Afghanistan, because as uh, we had been writing, we had been reporting that that uh, they are just waiting, the Hiz, Hizbul, Lashkar, Jash, which are now in fact uh, rename themselves as TRF, the Resistance Front, which is a very euphemistic name for the Islamist terror groups. And then we also have a Gilani force. Gilani was succeeded by Masrat Alam, who is right now in Tiarche. His network has activated itself in Kashmir. Essentially, Pakistan is back in the game because uh, the Biden administration you know, left Afghanistan uh, and they left Afghanistan in Pakistan's hands. Mm. So this we need to remember that the U.S. has left Afghanistan in Pakistan army's hands. They have also therefore left the entire region in Pakistan's hands. And whatever violence, whatever terror attacks we are seeing, it's happening because Pakistan army feels that they are back in business and they have the Biden administration's blessings or tacit approval and they can go back to what they are used to doing, which is terror. So we should not underestimate that. We should also not underestimate uh, Masrat Alam's network, even as the government of India did a lot of crackdown on terror networks. but. Uh, the fact is that all these mainstream political parties, whether it's National Conference, PDP, they have also been adding fuel to the fire. They've been, I mean, Mehbooba Mufti came out supporting Taliban. She came out defending and justifying Taliban. It was almost, you know, inviting Taliban to Kashmir. Mm -hmm. So that Clearly, a section in Kashmir, which is a radicalized section in Kashmir, they might give refuge to Taliban or Talibani mindset in Kashmir. Farooq Abdullah, same case, if you remember, he made statements saying that if there was a demographic change in Kashmir, we will not sit quiet, we are not going to, uh, you know, take it, we will not accept it. So he's also been adding fuel to the fire. And that is why I'm saying that the mainstream political parties plus Pakistan's role, it has created a new situation and the government of India needs to really crack down on this new emerging uh, terror network, the new emerging 
violent um, circle and they have to they have to i would say uh, the government of india has to one talk about kashmiri hindus because they haven't talked about kashmiri hindus yet they must speak about the minorities who are being targeted in kashmir it is very important for them to tell pakistan and the rest of the world also us and china who are actually trying to i would say they are taking advantage of the situation and i would also say that uh, china us probably have an understanding wherein they are uh, looking for more violence more instability in india via kashmir because it suits both both china and the us because uh, actually us is like you know we have left we don't care so us is in that frame of mind that they don't care but china of course uh, is in the frame of mind that they they have uh, cpec china pakistan economic corridor they have yeah. interest strategic interest in afghanistan as well so for for them it suits that there is violence and instability in this and that is why i think right. india must send a strong message to both china us pakistan that no power on earth will change their decision about jnk there is no going back on article 370 and 35a there is no going back on reorganization of jammu and kashmir and there is no going back on their plans to rehabilitate kashmiri hindus in kashmir so that message needs to go out all right so arti now let's uh, take a few questions from our viewers too so i'll start uh, with the latest one and then i'll go to the latter ones so so let's start with this so, so shri hari has asked what do we what uh, are certain short term uh, uh, solutions to the problems which uh, might come back again and again they are repeated in your opinion and what could be a long term solution let's say uh, if somebody was okay short term the government could do this to deal with uh, this and long term they have so i think long term ka to you just gave the answers but uh, to this current short term scenario so what do you think the government could do short term solution definitely is that the security forces have to crack down on the pakistani terror network they have to do it and uh, they cannot be seen as not doing it that is one second is muslims in kashmir this is particularly for youth youth in kashmir they have to come out strongly against pakistan they have to stand by the minorities it is not 1990 and they have to stop giving this excuse that their families will get harmed they will get harmed there are many people taking risks including me my family my brothers who are there we all are taking this risk because we are the new indians and that brings me to my own platform we are the new generation indians and we cannot be using the same old bogey of you know terror threat intimidation that we will be killed we're not in 1990 we're in 2021 and all right I, so go ahead go ahead go ahead and third i uh, think that uh, uh, so um, yeah i think these two essentially these two all right 
So again, this is an interesting question. I don't know if there's any data on that. Currently, what percentage of terrorists inside Kashmir doing these activities are actually Kashmiri Muslims? Uh, and also, weren't the security forces preventing their radicalization effectively in the past few years? So are these people, the terrorists, actually coming from Pakistan or these are like native Kashmiris now? These are native Kashmiri Muslims, but uh, as far as I understand the security scenario on the ground, I would say that there are foreigners as well. Uh, because the kind of uh, training these, although there is not much training of these Kashmiri Muslim uh, Muslims who are joining terrorism and who are becoming part of the terror network, but uh, the the kind of warfare they are doing, the kind of uh, killings they are attempting, uh, not just attempting, but the killings that they have done in the last few weeks, it's an indicator that there are foreigners who are training them to do these things. I don't think it's happening uh, completely uh, autonomously or completely independently. I think there are foreign elements. How many would be difficult to say, but uh, if you go by what the security forces have been saying, the majority are native Kashmiri Muslims. And it's probably 70-30 ratio or 60-40 ratio. And second, All right. so, second question was that, uh, what was your second question? The, the second one was, uh, uh, weren't the security forces actually preventing the radicalization? So has the radicalization gone down or it's pretty much the same level? Security I think forces that's are not involved in de-radicalization really. Uh, I am not sure why this impression is that the security forces are involved in de-radicalization. De-radicalization will start from schools. It's the job of the government. It's the job of the center now with the fact that JNK is a union territory, that the school curriculum has to change, the madrasa curriculum has to change. In fact, um, I would say madrasa education is really harmful to, to children because the kind of uh, education that is imparted in madrasas, even if madrasas are not creating terrorists directly, but they are the ideologues who are radicalizing society. And they are the ones who are uh, who are pushing boys into terror. So do not underestimate the negative role and the damaging role of madrasas in Kashmir. It's deadly, but there is no government interference yet. There is no government, uh, you know, reform in even in private sector uh, schools or government schools. So de-radicalization has to start from there. Then second, I would say uh, de-radicalization has to also uh, start from masjids, mosques. And that is civil society's job. That is not uh, the government's job. Civil society is yet to, I would say, come out openly against terror. They are yet to... You know, masjids in 1990 were used to propagate Islamist views. They were, uh, in fact, even in the last, uh, till 2016-17, masjids were constantly being used to propagate radical views. 
against Hindus, against other uh, communities. That has not changed. So de-radicalization, I don't see any program, any reform moment for that yet. And uh, security forces are not involved in that. Yeah, so somebody has asked this very specific question. Is JNK Apni party a massive improvement over a national conference or PDP? Or there is just an old wine in a new bottle? Well, I would say that they are an improvement, at least in terms of what they are saying. But if you look at the backgrounds of uh, some of the people, then I'm not so sure because, for example, uh, some of these people were once upon a time Saeed Ali Shah Gilani fans. Some of them were fans of, uh, I mean, some of them worked with PDP, some of them worked with National Conference. Some of them worked with, with all. And therefore, I'm not sure if they are the people who genuinely believe in, uh, in what they're saying today. I have my doubts. But as far as the optics is concerned, as far as what they are saying today, yes, they are an improvement. But uh, suppose they are not in power, suppose they, are, they don't come to power, what shape they will take, what kind of narrative they will you know, propagate, we don't know. So I would say that uh, it's an improvement, but I have doubts. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a, so. So, what does the government of India do? Like, do they have to now employ? Uh, it's a very specific question. A new generation of Ikhwanis. So that was. <laughs> no, I think there are a lot of youth who, on their own, really believe in India. I think there are people who generally think of themselves as Indians. They're not Apni Party, they're not NC, they're not PDP, they're not, but they are there. There are people who are openly talking about uh, the Indian civilization. They're openly talking about the Hindu civilizational history of Kashmir. They're openly talking about, uh, you know, uh, their connections with the larger uh, pantheon of uh, Hindu culture. So, I would say that that it's not Indian. Indian government doesn't need to do anything. That movement will happen organically. It is possible to have that movement, but that movement will not flourish if the government of India does not show its will to crack down on anti-India elements in Kashmir. If the government of India does not discourage the people who have, uh, you can say, minted money out of the conflict and who have also used every successive government to its own advantage and benefit. The, the new organic Indian in Kashmir will grow provided the Indian state shows its will and determination to have Indian sovereignty cemented in Kashmir. If India, if India is flaky, if India shakes, because there is, I know that um, 
there is an element within the indian system uh, within the indian bureaucracy which is left leaning which uh, does not really believe in in anything who are nihilistic in many ways right? yeah they are nihilistic they are they are so if if they confuse the government of india if they create the confusion that that the government of india must uh, must not do anything in kashmir the government of india must not exert its uh, its authority in kashmir then of course the the person the people in kashmir who identify themselves as indians they will never come out on the streets calling themselves as indians so it right, depends so- a lot on what the government of india does because the government of india needs to improve we need to show our authority we need to show that we mean good governments we need to show that we mean uh, we really mean well for kashmir and that meaning well will come only when there is good governance and when we are not promoting the fraudulent uh, politicians we are not promoting lot of people who have been on both sides of the aisle who have been hobnobbing with uh, people in islamabad rawalpindi washington dc beijing uh, london so those people when they the, when such people are completely sidelined you will see emergence of the organic indian in kashmir all right so i'm going to mesh these two questions together because there are about kashmiri pandits or kashmiri hindus aajkal us pe bhi debate hoti hai kya bolna chahiye i find it very funny all these things so so uh, so the, there are two sets of questions one is basically about well, you know considering the new state of affairs post 370 and all that i mean is panun kashmir a realistic goal for uh, pandits uh, or uh, or does it even make any sense anymore and second is well, what do you make of this certain community inside uh, the certain set within the community that suffer some some kind of a i don't know what you somebody the the questionnaire has used what is your opinion about certain groups showing stockholm syndrome symptoms defending the separatist actions in kashmir so so what do you make of the entire community the discourse between the community as you're part of it yourself well uh, anybody who is depending or justifying islamist terrorists in kashmir i would say they are part of the conflict industry clear mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether they are kashmiri hindus whether they are muslims whether they are sikhs whether they are non kashmiris in fact a large section is also non kashmiri uh, conflict entrepreneurs in in kashmir so don't don't think that it's only kashmiri pandit kashmiri hindu kashmiri muslim who has benefited from the conflict there are many outside players who have benefited from it. so that is why their statements justifying islamist terror that is why you will see stockholm syndrome among them and some i think are so ignorant or benighted that they don't even know what they're talking about so there is that section as well then uh, then there are people who know everything who have who are fully informed 
and yet they have chosen to say things only because they hate uh, they hate the modi government they hate prime minister modi they hate home minister amit shah so they are going to say that irrespective of uh, everything irrespective of the truth now uh, i would say that lot of people uh, among uh, kashmiri pandits i would say most kashmiri pandits most kashmiri pandits 99% kashmiri pandits displaced kashmiri pandits they are fully aware what is happening in kashmir they have been fully aware of the truth and they do not associate themselves with any of these characters who have stockholm syndrome or who uh, who are ignorant or who are confused there is no confusion within the kashmiri hindu community there is no confusion whatsoever they have full faith in the government of india they have full faith in indian security forces and they also have a certain demand you can say that the majority are backing panun kashmir the majority pose their faith in the leadership of uh, agni shekhar ji ajay rangu ji sushil pandey these are the people whom they have full faith in and hence they are going to back the whole idea of panun kashmir now if you ask me personally is panun kashmir a practical idea i would say even if it were practical i as a student of history and international relations and politics and as a journalist i would say that uh it's i i would i would prefer the entire jnk to be my panun jnk rather than a very small tiny territory of kashmir as my panun kashmir because as somebody who was born and brought up in kashmir i found shelter in jammu so i have an attachment i have a sense of gratitude for jammu i have an attachment with kashmir and i don't want to part ways with either i don't want to be confined in a small territory in kashmir because i see uh, i have traveled as a journalist and also as a kashmiri from places to from uri baramula down to verinag and all of it is has uh, you know brings a sense of identity to me so i can't perceive myself as a kashmiri confined to a small territory because my grandfather's generation my father's generation their ancestors there's a collective memory of kashmir being the home it cannot be one small section or one slice of kashmir as as my home it's all so i would say that uh, i want entire panun बीजेपी इंडिया 
iota of truth or bigotry i have no clue what this article is i have not read it so even can you kushal can you can you please explain what credential furbishing what does that mean i have no clue what does this mean that's why i was like mere ko khud ko nahi samajh pad raha what does it even mean jyoti malhotra ji ka to i don't know matlab where has she come brought this you know phrase i absolutely have no understanding i mean ye meri samajh se bahar hai but uh, if she was alluding to some kind of uh, allegation or accusation that it was a show it was an optic to show that muslims are protesting now let me so this is this is the most bizarre thing because <laughs> that's why i shared it on the screen i got confused myself with this game because so this is the this is the dilemma and probably the paradox of the pseudo liberal or the liberal class let's say liberal class i don't want to use the pseudo liberal they really are liberal so this is the paradox of the liberal class in india when you when you tell them that there is islamic radicalization they tell you no 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 there is no radicalization all muslims are indians all muslims are secular all muslims are plural okay and any sane person any person who has the knowledge of what is really happening in across india would you know laugh at it because islamic radicalization has happened it has happened in the last 30 years and even before i mean 1947 when the country was partitioned it was partitioned on uh, because there was an entire community which, which was religiously radicalized and jinnah was the leader of it uh, leader of that movement so that was islamic radicalization we have the whole the whole uh, idea of war the idea of violence change because pakistan or middle east or you can say uh, america helped in the notion of subconventional which was essentially terrorism that's what they did in afghanistan and now these people when you tell them that radicalization happened they will they will completely deny they will say that aisa nahi hota hai indian indian muslims how can you question how can you question any indian muslim even if they are radical in their mind even if they are uh, religiously bigoted against other communities they will not accept it now the same liberal class when you tell them that genuinely koi muslim hai who is talking for example my friend arsha malik or for example my other muslim friends who genuinely believe in india who genuinely think that they are indian they will they will they will say that ye sab optics hai this is this is not real so they will not accept them because any muslim who calls himself an indian they don't on one hand they don't like like it on the other hand if you tell them that there is radicalization within muslim community they don't accept it either so these people have some kind of a schizophrenia where they don't want to address the real issues i am saying that there is radicalization and i am saying 
that there are people, there are genuine Indian Muslims who are opposed to that radicalization, who are opposed to Pakistan, who are opposed to pa Islamists, who are opposed to Muslim conservatism, but they don't like liberal Muslims. They like only conservative Muslims. They like only those Muslims who, who spit at India. They like Muslims, they like only those Muslims who abuse India. And they like those Muslims who will say that this government, the Modi government is fascistic, that uh, Prime Minister Modi is a fascist. So this is what they like and this is why their entire nonsense has no currency today among the larger masses. That is why liberals today are taking a beating and they will take this beating for another two decades if they don't reform, if they don't know how to speak truth. All right, Aarti, before we wrap it up, now I have to talk about it. So, first of all, uh, I'm extremely happy. With, uh, obviously, I've known about this. But first of all, uh, as you mentioned, so now you started a new journey in your life uh, with uh, a new media platform called The New Indian. So, first of all, congratulations about that. But now we, so let's end today's podcast. Let's talk about The New Indian. So, why don't you tell everybody... <coughs> about how, how the New Indian has come up, what it's all about, and what can we expect from the New Indian? Oh, well, uh, I am hoping that uh, people who are uh, today listening to your podcast did watch our promo, the New Indian promo, where we did explicitly mention that we are a digital media platform. Uh, what is unique about this digital media platform is that we bring audio with audio video news stories from the ground and we bring audio video views as well so we are essentially a digital media uh, platform focused on audio video instead of print we have print we, we are not averse to the written word we love the written word as well but we are more focused on video and Second thing uh, which is really important about our platform is that we are driven by internet and we are providing all our content on internet enabled devices. We have already launched our website on October 2nd, that was Gandhi Jayanti. We are, uh, our URL is newindian.in. So if you type newindian.in, you will go to our homepage. You will see our content there. You, uh, Kushal, probably you could pull it up if, if you can. Uh, sure, sure. I'll do that. Just yeah. give me, a, uh, give me so, a minute. I'll pull it up. Yeah. So newindian.in is a website as well as uh, phone and tablet application. We are releasing our phone app and uh, tablet application within this month. They are in the process of finalization and you will get our content on your mobiles apart from the URL, apart from uh, putting our URL in your browser, you can also access our stories, our content on our phone app and tablet too. Now, third important thing about our platform is that we are not going to be like any of these ideologically driven platforms which are 
which are actually uh, helping our enemies we are clear about where we stand in terms of our thinking we are primarily indian we are first indian last indian and we believe in uh, we believe in the uh, voice of the voiceless in india we will bring you stories of uh, people who are not covered either by the print or by tv our tagline is what tv doesn't print can't we deliver and there is a reason that we chose this tagline because we know that a uh, lot of the digital platforms are uh, bashing india day in day out it's their one point mission is to to basically do propaganda against one particular party and we are not into that we are not into propaganda for or against any political party we are interested in common indian common indians and their stories we are interested in their views that is why my co-founder rohan dua and i we decided that we will travel ourselves we will get stories ourselves we have a very small team but it's a very very uh, competent talented team we have a good mix of senior people and freshers and we are training young indians to carry forward this mission that we set on that so that in years to come we don't have to worry that there aren't enough uh, you know competent journalists who will uh, who will do this who will carry this forward uh, we believe in training the young indians not only in journalism but also in good journalism connected to the ground and not any armchair journalism the biggest point i think about this platform is my personal journey i worked in mainstream media for 20 years and after 20 years i think uh, i realized that i had seen enough i had done enough as a reporter as an editor and i felt that i wanted to be my own boss and i also wanted uh, to train young people so that is why this platform and of course the unique thing is that i'm the first woman entrepreneur from jammu and kashmir the first woman entrepreneur from jammu and kashmir in india's national digital media so uh, that is uh, i think uh, that's a good thing uh, not just for me but for many women who are who are looking for in you know a career in entrepreneurship who may have dreams but don't have the confidence to do it but i can tell you uh, you can do it you need of course um, clarity of thinking second you need uh, a good team i was lucky i'm fortunate that i have my co-founder rohan dua i have a senior person uh, pramod kumar singh i have um, anand and i have many other deeraj namit i mean i can go on and on but uh, it's still a small team we are just we are just a dozen people in the editorial but we are doing it we are all of us are performing multiple roles 
each one of us is being an editor, a reporter, uh, even a camera person, and even a spot boy, <laughs> spot girl. So I do, for example, I go on my own. I carry my entire equipment along with myself. I do my piece too. I do everything on my own. I edit and then it goes to our team in Delhi, here in Delhi. Uh, I am uh, pretty satisfied and content that we are doing this. We are providing something new to India. I want to leave an institution behind for posterity. I want to leave the legacy of good journalism in this country. And I am doing this because in the last, you can say, in the last 30 years, journalism has got only bad name in India, in fact, across the world. Journalism True. has been in a sorry state of affairs. And the reason I decided that I had to be on my own because I could not fit in the colonial mainstream media wherein, you know, there is a set template for journalism. And I wanted to take a break from that. I wanted to break away from that. So that is why I'm here. And I want to leave credible uh, journalism, which can really raise the voice of ordinary people. And that's, uh, that all this requires is essentially going to the basics of journalism, which is to report objectively, which is to go to the ground, which is to explore stories, speak to people, talk to people, and not just the power brokers in Delhi or, you know, wheeler dealers in big uh, cosmopolitan cities. That is why we're going to villages. That's why we are going to borders. That's why we're going to the hinterland. And uh, I want your support. I want support of all Indians across the country. I want support of common Indians for this venture. Well, uh, I, first of all, I wish you all the best and, you know, I, I can totally relate to you. So, so, first of all, after so many years, it must be feeling so good to be free finally. <laughs> you don't have to ask. You don't yes. have to answer to anyone about any editorial line or anything. So, first of all, that, that must be a great feeling. But you, look, I've always respected your work. I have always respected your journalism and, uh, and uh, which is why I keep talking to you because it's so hard to find people who just you know want to speak clearly so obviously you know i i'm really happy that uh, you've uh, taken this uh, this new project and uh, as far as i'm concerned you know i wish you all the success each and every person in your team and uh, uh, and you know as far as uh, our our conversations over here they're always going to be uh, continuing and uh, you know arti once again thanks a lot for coming and uh, speaking with us today Thank you, Kushal. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the best in your future journey. All right. Thank you. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Uh, so please go and follow the new Indian on Twitter. Please follow Arthi on Twitter. Uh, as I shared the screen of the website, uh, but even in the description, I've left uh, the link to the new Indian website. So please go and check their work out. Please support good journalism because I've always said this and I'll say it again. You can only expect, you know, that, that word ecosystem keeps getting thrown around. The, things don't happen until and unless 
you go and read material you go and subscribe to different channels different portals and get different points of view look there are going to be many occasions where you might go on channels that don't agree with me but i want you to do that i want you to go and have alternative views because the more views we read the more information we get the more nuance our view gets and and i would urge each and every one of you to go and support the new indian so please look at the details in the description of the podcast once again thanks for supporting the chawak podcast please subscribe to the channel like the video support the podcast by either becoming a member on youtube or becoming a subscriber on patreon or sending your donations to upi or buying the merch i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye